0: Good evening, it's really good to see all of you here this evening and really good to be back here at Crimson Tees It's been quite a while, hasn't it? In your bulletin, you should be able to find a loose leaf, um, loose sheet and in there is printed uh, Psalm 51 I'm sorry, the print is a little bit small We have that printed in our bulletin uh, but that's the traditional prayer book um, version slightly different from the ESV that our church were used to And uh, it's missing two verses at the end as well, so I thought i will just print it out for all of us. If you take it out, it'll help you, uh, give you a bit of a steer as to where we're heading this evening. A Harvard psychiatrist, Dr. Carl Menninger, wrote a book in 1973, entitled, Whatever Became of Sin, he said, and I quote, The very word sin, which seems to have disappeared, was once a proud word. It was once a strong word, an ominous and serious word. But the word went away. It has almost disappeared. The word along with the notion. Why? Doesn't anyone sin anymore? Doesn't anyone believe in sin? End quote. We might be tempted to think that Dr. Menninger was overstating his case, Except that in 2007, the Oxford Junior Dictionary did remove the word sin from the dictionary. And so we now have generations of children using that dictionary, and I I used it when I was uh, much younger, that no longer would know what the word sin meant. Apparently the editors of the dictionary removed the word so as to better reflect a multicultural society. Well, today we don't really hear the word sin much. In fact, our society has replaced the strong biblical words for sin in our daily vocabulary. I mean, we don't commit adultery anymore. We have affairs. Our corporate executives don't steal. They commit fraud. Our politicians don't lie. They simply misspoke. The church has its own challenge as well with sin. Because Christians sin and that is to be expected but what do we do with our sins and at one extreme end we ignore it we try not to think about it we minimize it we rationalize it we try to cover it up there might even be among some christian circles a category of sins called respectable sins which by the way is the title of a book at that extreme We obsess over sin. We punish ourselves for it. We beat ourselves over it. We wallow in guilt, shame, regret. And then we realise that this is not helping us because we get driven deeper into our sins and further away from God. What then are we to do? And for the answer to that, we want to look at our passage today, Psalm 51. This psalm was written by King David after he had sinned grievously. And it gives us a model, I believe, for how we can tackle our sins as Christians. As the heading at the top of the psalm tells us, David wrote this psalm when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had committed adultery with Bathsheba. And later, after discovering that she was pregnant, arranged to have her husband Uriah killed in battle. Well, you know the story. It's found in 2 Samuel 11 and 12. And Louis read for us very well earlier on. We have adultery. We have murder. These are terrible sins. And there are two sins for which the Mosaic law provides no forgiveness. Because they are both punishable by death. No sacrifice would suffice. Now, some of you here this evening might be thinking, well, I've never committed adultery or murder. I'm not sure I can necessarily identify with what David must have gone through or with the psalm that he wrote. But if you remember, it was just last month when we preached on the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, verses 21-22, when Jesus said, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, You fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Or in Matthew chapter 5, verse 27, 28, where Jesus said, You have heard that it was said, You shall not permit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent, has already committed adultery with her in his heart. You see, in Jesus' mind, we've all committed adultery, we've all committed murder. Well, unless we haven't lusted or haven't been angry with someone at some point in our lives. You see, the point is this. What's in King David's heart that prompted him to commit adultery and murder? That's not very different from what is in our hearts when we lust or when we are angry with someone. And so Psalm 51 is relevant to all of us. And with that as a context, let's dive into the psalm itself. Our psalm this evening can be divided into three parts. The first from verses 1 to 6, confession. It's David in effect saying to God, God, I did this. The second from verses 7 to 13, cleansing. It's David pleading to God, God, please do this. And the third from verses 14 to 19, change. Is David committing to God? God, I will do this. Confession, cleansing, and change. Let's begin with confession. King David starts off this psalm with the words, "Have mercy on me, O God." Now, these are the words of someone who recognizes that mercy is the only basis for coming to God for forgiveness. The words, "Have mercy." It's the language of someone who knows that he has no claims at all to the favour that he begs. During one of the wars, in French wars in the 18th century, a mother came to General Napoleon Bonaparte, begging for her son, who deserted the army and was caught. And he was, the son was soon to be executed. And the mother begged the general, Have mercy on my son. Napoleon replied, But what has he done to deserve mercy? And the mother said, If he had, it wouldn't be mercy. You see, King David knew that there was nothing he had done or could have done to deserve God's mercy for the heinous sins that he committed. He could not come to God for justice. He needed mercy. And his basis for mercy was solely on God's character. And that's why he asks for mercy according to God's steadfast love, according to his abundant mercy. Steadfast love, the Hebrew word is hazard, a word that I'm sure all of you are very familiar with. It's a covenant word, which tells us something interesting that for all his unworthiness, David knows that he still has a covenantal relationship with God. But that's not the only thing that David knows he's also very aware of his sin and its true nature. In a sense, that's what it means to confess sin, isn't it? The word confess means to say the same thing. It means that we see in the same way that God sees it. We see sin exactly how God sees it. And here, David uses three words in his first two verses to describe the nature of sin. The first is the word Transgression. The word transgression is rebellion against God. Rebellion against God. God has set a certain standard and rebelled against it. We transgress God's law. The second is the word iniquity. The word iniquity conveys the crookedness of the sinner. It's about depravity of our natures, our perversion of God's standards. The third is the word sin. It means falling short or missing the mark. You see, God has set a standard and we fall short of it, like an arrow falling short of a target. So think of it this way. Transgression is when we rebel against God's standard. Iniquity is when we pervert God's standard. And sin is when we fall short of God's standards. And King David used all three words for sin to show how comprehensively he has sinned. And correspondingly, his plea for forgiveness is intended to be equally far-reaching. And that is the most important point David is making in these verses. It is not the nature of sin. It's the fact that all the sins in God's sight can be forgiven. And this is what David's pleading for. And this is what he desires with God. To blot out his transgression, to wash him from his iniquity, and to cleanse him from his sin. You see, to blot out his transgression is the idea that there's a record of our sins somewhere that's kept by God. And David is pleading for God to blot it out, to remove it from the records. And to wash from his iniquity is to recognize that sin defiles and sin pollutes, like something that dirties our clothes. And David is asking for it to be washed thoroughly or repeatedly to remove it. And to be cleansed from his sin refers to a cleansing that turns something defiled into something pure, usually by way of ritual washing or sacrifice. And so just in these two verses, verse 1 and 2, we see David recognizing clearly the nature of his sins and his desire to have him forgiven. Verse 3, he says, For I know my transgressions. You see, David knew his sins. He knew the terrible nature of the sins that he had committed. And because of that, his conscience weighs on him. And he says, My sin is ever before me. Often in our world today, We do not ask God for forgiveness because we do not recognize that what we do is sin. But not David. He was clear about what he did. And verse 4, Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Against you and you only have I sinned? Or you might be thinking, against God and God only? What about Bathsheba? What about Uriah? Well, we should not think that David thought that he didn't sin against them. That's not the issue here. But rather, David recognizes that sin, by its very definition, is first and foremost always against God. Because when we sin, it is God's law that we are breaking. And you see that understanding in David's response to Nathan in 2 Samuel 12, verse 13. When Nathan pointed out his sin, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And this is the same understanding for the other biblical characters. For instance, if you remember, uh, Joseph and Potiphar's wife in Genesis chapter 39 are told that Potiphar's wife had her eyes on Joseph and said to him, Lie with me. But Joseph refused. And he said, and this was his answer to Potiphar's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in this house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He's not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? You see, Joseph was clear that if he had slept with Potiphar's wife, his sin, first and foremost, is against God. Our sins are always first and foremost against God because it is God's law that we are breaking and that's why God will be justified and blameless in His judgment. Verse 5 Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Well, David is not saying here that somehow his mother sinned when she conceived him but rather he understood it. it was not just the case that he sinned but rather he was also born a sinner. Like David, we are all sinners. Not only by choice, but by nature as well. Verse 6, Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. You see the word behold in verse 6, and you see that in verse 5 as well. And these two verses here, What they do is they show us the huge gap between what we said a moment ago in verse 5 and what we see now here in verse 6. Between who we are and who God desires for us to be. We sin and we are born sinners. That's who we are. But God desires for us truth in our inward being and wisdom in our secret heart. And David recognizes that gap and hence his plea for forgiveness and his confession in these six verses. Moving on, cleansing. But how do we know that David's confession is genuine? You've seen it before, haven't you? Two kids fighting in a playground, and a parent of one kid telling him, Say sorry, Well, because he started the fight. And somewhat grudgingly, the kid mumbles the word, Sorry. You know that apology is not sincere? But we know that David's confession here is genuine. And how do we know that? Because he didn't just say sorry. He didn't just ask God for forgiveness. He asked God also for a clean heart. David knows that he's susceptible to sin again. So he knows that simply confessing and asking for forgiveness alone will not do. He needs an inward renewal. He needs a clean heart and a right spirit, a steadfast spirit, which is what we see in verse 10. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. The word create here is a Hebrew word, bara, which some of you will know is used in Genesis chapter 1 for the creation of the heavens and the earth by God. This word describes what only God can do. To create, in Latin, ex nihilo, which means to create out of nothing. David is asking here for what only God can do. Only what God can provide this. He's asking for nothing short of a miracle. He's asking for a clean heart. But apart from clean heart David wants also for restored fellowship with God. He asks God not to cast him away from his presence in verse 11. You see when David sinned his relationship with God didn't change. He was still very much part of the people of God. But his fellowship with God changed. It was broken. Well, think of it this way. When my wife, Karina, and I have an argument, which I'm glad to say is not too often, it should be a little bit colder towards me, and I might kind of stay in my study and not speak to her for a while, our fellowship with one another gets affected. It gets broken thankfully it doesn't last long usually about 20 minutes but in terms of relationship we're still married to one another that doesn't change it's the same with david his relationship with god hasn't changed but his fellowship's broken because of his sin and so david asked god not to cast him away from his presence he wants to be in god's presence he wants that fellowship with god restored but here's the problem A holy God cannot tolerate the presence of an unclean person. And David's sins have left him unclean. And so David prays for his sins to be purged, which means to be cleansed, uh, with hyssop in verse 7. Hyssop is a plant that is often used uh, to be made into a small little brush. Uh, In Leviticus chapter 14, we are told how hyssop, was used to sprinkle blood on a leper, one who has been healed of his leprosy, in an act of ceremonial cleansing. And then in Numbers 19, it is used in a similar ceremony to cleanse ones who has been defiled by touching a dead body. In either case, when the cleansing is done, the priest pronounces the person clean. And that's exactly what David wants. David desires to be pronounced clean. How clean? Well, I remember when I was doing my seminary studies in Vancouver and our family went skiing in Whistler and while riding on one of the chair leaves with one of my daughters and she was barely 10 years old then and wanting to teach her something about God's forgiveness. I mean, I'm a seminary student after all. I said to her, pointing to the snow below us, I said, when God forgives us, He washes us white as snow. She turned to me and said, No, daddy, whiter than snow. (laughs) And that's what David wants, to be cleansed, to be washed by God, and for God to blot out all his iniquities so that he can be clean, whiter than snow. And in fact, in these few verses, from verses 7 to 13, David is pleading with God. He's saying, God, make me clean. Hide your face from my sins and turn your face towards me. I want our fellowship restored. I want the joy of us by salvation restored. I want to be able to teach transgressors your ways so that they may also turn to you. But David didn't know. He didn't know then what we know now. What it would cause God to answer his prayer. Because when Jesus had His hands, stretched out on a cross and he was dying he turned to his father and he began to pray and for the first time in all of his life he turned to his father and his father didn't turn to him he looked up to heaven and there was no one there he cried out my god my god why have you forsaken me and there was silence Because for God, the Father, to hide His face from David's sins so that He can turn His face towards David, He had to hide His face from His one and only Son, Jesus. Jesus paid the penalty for David's sins so that God could hide His face from the sins of David and look towards the sinner, David. And that's what caused God for David to be cleansed. It was very costly. Next, Change How often have you heard people saying, People don't really change. Leopards don't change their sport, they say. Well, I'm just glad to say that that isn't true because if it was, I'd be out of the job. You see, the whole premise of pastoral ministry is that God wants His people to be changed. To be changed to be more and more like Christ in Christ-likeness. So if change is not possible, I'm wasting my time. Thanks be to God, change is possible. And in David's case, with confession and cleansing comes change. And here David is committed to change. He wants change. And here we see change in two ways. The first change is that David wants to be able to truly worship God. You see that? uh, In the words in this section, from verses 14 to 17, you see that? Words like sing aloud. Words like uh, declare your praise. Words like sacrifices. These are all the activities of worship in David's time. And true worship is what David desires. And he knows it is only possible when he has confessed and has been changed, cleansed. Verse 14. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, David writes. David's sins have resulted in him suffering from a guilty conscience, a guilty conscience that weighs heavily on his heart, and it makes worship impossible. And because of that, David, you remember, he's the musician, the poet well-known for his psalms. David had been silent. He looks around. Each day he sees the people around him. He hears a little bit of the palace gossips. He knows that they know what he has done. And his sins have silenced his witness. And David wants that to change. He prays for deliverance from a guilty conscience because he wants to be able to sing aloud God's righteousness. He prays for his lips to be opened again because he wants to declare God's praise. David wants also to be able to offer sacrifices that would please God. Sacrifices that God would delight in. He's not saying in verse 16 that God thinks that sacrifices are not important or less important than a broken spirit or a broken heart. But rather, if a person's heart is not in the right place with God, their sacrifices will not please God. It's meaningless. You see, the significance of a burnt offering is dependent on the heart of the person bringing it to the altar. True worship happens only if that heart... It's a broken and contrite heart. The second change that King David wants is the fact that his recognition that there's a close relationship between his own spiritual well-being, his own spiritual health, and the well-being of the whole people of God. And we see that in verses 18 and 19. King David, confessed, having confessed his sins, having been cleansed by God, now reflects on the consequences of his sins on his nation. And he prays for God to do good to Zion, to prosper the city. And in those days, the walls of the city was what kept the city secure. You see, without the walls, attacker could come in from any direction and a city would be defenseless. David would have started work on the wall because that is important work. And so he prays that this work of building the walls of Jerusalem might continue and not be hindered by his sins. He wants Zion to be a city where godly people could come to delight God with their sacrifices. And likewise, we need to remember too that what we do affects God's people. No Christian is an island. Our sins can negatively impact others in our restoration can equally be a blessing. Well, let me conclude. Today is Ash Wednesday. It's the beginning of Lent. And as we enter into the season of Lent, what can this psalm teach us? Well, let me recap. Well, firstly, we need confession. We need to recognise the nature of our sins, grieve over them, and ask God for mercy to forgive them based not on any merit on our part, but on God's steadfast love. Why well, it certainly helps for us, each one of us here, to have our own Prophet Nathan. Many of us are blessed to have married a Prophet Nathan. If you haven't, pray for Prophet Nathan to come into your life. A friend, a neighbour, someone from church. Or pray for a Prophet Nathan, someone who will speak truth to you and confront you when you sin. Secondly, we need cleansing. We need an inward renewer, a clean heart and a right spirit. We need our sins blotted out and our fellowship restored. But we need to recognize that that comes at a great cost to Jesus. And thirdly, we need change. Change in how we come before God in our worship, not as people who deserve to come into His presence, but people with contrite hearts, like the tax collector at the temple who cries, God have mercy on me a sinner. Change that recognises our personal sins have corporate consequences. We know what happened in the end with King David, and just as the prophet Nathan foretold, the baby born as a result of his adultery with Bathsheba died, the sword never left his house because trouble would come more from within his family than from his enemies without. David's own son would rebel against him and sleep with his wives in full view of all Israel. David may be forgiven and cleansed, but the consequences of his sins remain. But that's not all. There is more. Because Bathsheba would go on to bear David, another son, Solomon who would become the successor to David's throne. And from that lineage, a descendant would be born who would one day die on the cross in order to bring about God's forgiveness for David's sins as well as for all of ours. So what can we learn from Psalm 51? No matter how badly we fall, God can build us up. No matter how broken we are, God can make us whole. No matter how much we sin, our fellowship with God can be restored. All because of what King David's future son, Jesus, has done for us. Let's reflect on that this Lent. In the name of the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you, Roger, for being, as it were, the prophet Nathan to us this evening. Before we say our concluding prayers and have our our last song and blessing, I just want to thank you all again for coming out this evening. Um, My understanding is that at Christ the King, uh, traditionally on Ash Wednesday, we depart in silence. Um, And so while I know we want to greet each other and spend a little more time in chit-chat, uh, we are going to leave this place um, if we can. In. Uh